Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 28th, 2022. I think June is going to be remembered in 2022 as the month that crypto melted down, that the crypto scam, or what some people think of as the crypto scam, was finally exposed. Uh, the headlines, the ramifications of many collapsing crypto companies, exchanges, platforms, technologies continue to reverberate through the economy. Uh, one, uh, one piece of news today is that one prominent uh, crypto hedge fund just defaulted on a $670 million loan. Uh, the, the, the brokers, the, the shares are, are plunging. The, this, uh, this fund, Three Arrows, was uh, the fund that's in crisis. Meanwhile, even the quote-unquote credible platforms like Coinbase and, uh, and Robinhood, which are exchanges for, um, exchanges for, for cryptocurrency, even the the so-called crypto winter is having a chilling effect on them. All in all, uh, $60 billion has been lost. I'm not sure if it's this month, June 2022, but over the last few months in the collapse of the markets. One of the companies that most intrigues me is one called Celsius. I flagged it several months ago. It promised exorbitant interest rates on essentially loans to it, crypto loans to it at 25%. I immediately said, this is a scam. It's run by a man called uh, Alex Mashinsky. Um, I might think of him as a crypto king, um, a man who promised a great deal, a very charismatic Ukrainian. He's distinguished because he used to walk around with a T-shirt saying, banks are not your friends. Uh, that may be true, but certainly uh, Alex Mashinsky is not your friend either. He may well become one of the pinups, one of the crypto kings. But he's not the first crypto king. And in fact, the biggest king of all may be a queen, um, a woman uh, who uh, got away with millions, maybe billions of dollars, um, is uh, somebody that... Uh, most people don't know very much about a Bulgarian woman uh, called um, Ignatova, Ruya Ignatova, and she is written about in a new book, uh, also a very popular podcast by my old friend Jamie Bartlett, who is joining us from an undisclosed location in northeastern <laughs> London. Jamie. The, the missing crypto queen. Was this woman, uh, Ignatova, uh, is she the ultimate scam artist? Of course, she scammed before this current round of scamming of the meltdown of crypto. Tell me what she did and, and how you became acquainted with her. Yeah, I wonder, actually, I've always talked about her as the biggest single con artist in the whole crypto world. And over the last month or so, I'm wondering whether I might have to revisit that. Yeah, That's you might have to write a book about Mashinsky. Did, uh, <laughs> did Ignatova walk around with a T-shirt saying banks are not your friend? She walked around with million dollar necklaces and ball gowns saying, I've created the new Bitcoin. 
there's a lot of similarities in all these other crypto projects, uh, the scammy ones at least, where she basically said back in 2014, when it was early days in the crypto world, she said, uh, Bitcoin's, you've missed the boat already with Bitcoin. It's already too expensive. It's for technologists and nerds and geeky people. It's never going to become the global financial currency that you all want. But I've created a simpler one, an easier one. It's easier to use. It's centralized. We're going to work with the authorities. It's very cheap now, and it's going to keep going up in value. And she had a good name for it. She called it OneCoin, right? It was one. I suppose it was one coin to defeat them all, wasn't it? And one coin too many. <laughs> <laughs> this was the logo, the sign that they all used to sort of send to each other. One coin, of course, a lot of people said that was ultimately the value of the coin she sold. Now, this was the the genius of it was actually this. She basically, you, you remember sort of uh, Tupperware and Avon, these yeah. things that you'd sell in your in your parties with friends where you try and convince your friends and family. Sort to of multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing. Actually, the secret of OneCoin was that really it was a multi-level marketing company. But the product she was selling was a cryptocurrency, not vitamins or shampoo or cleaning products, but a bit but a but the future of money that was bound to go up in value. So what she did, Jamie, so she employed salespeople to go out and sell one coin, and she was the the master saleswoman, Correct. I guess, controlling other salespeople. And I, I assume most of them didn't know it was a scam. They probably believed it. Well, if you once you hear the numbers, you'll realize this gets very, very, very difficult to work out who's the scammer and who's the victim, because within 18 months of her turning up, well over a billion euros and ultimately it would prove to be well over four or five billion euros was invested into OneCoin from uh, around a million people in 175 right, countries. Right, and uh, the charts I saw on the BBC suggest that most of that is coming from China, vast, vast proportion. The next biggest is Germany and then the UK and the US, but it's, it's primarily China. That was up to two, June 2016. The scam is still operating today, in spite of everything else that's happened. And I'll tell you what's happened in a second, but the scam is still going. China was the biggest country, kind of crazed for both multi-level marketing and cryptocurrencies that had gripped the country in 2015. But it, it reached pretty much everywhere. And it was ordinary retail investors that were normally putting in 5,000 euros, 10,000 euros. They'd receive their digital wallets, which would have a number in. They'd have 1,000 one coin, 5,000 one coin, 10,000 one coin. And as far as they understood it, the price was going up all the time. They could never actually turn it into real money. Uh, but they were always told that next month, next year, it's going to be possible. But they, they'd sell it to their friends and family. So, so, so make, Jamie, let, let's let, let's simplify it for people who still don't understand crypto. One coin was a, um, a, a network peer-to-peer, quote-unquote, currency, um, and the crypto queen scammed people by essentially creating a price for that coin for her one coin. People yeah. paid for it. And then it became a Ponzi scheme and she collected their money. She owned one coin. Is that fair? In simple terms, yes, that's it. She created a coin out of thin air, said there was a, in the end, it was a, it was 120 billion of these coins that she was selling to people and promoters were selling to their friends who were selling to their friends. So this spread like a pyramid. So you would have friends and family selling one coin to each other. 
make, making a small amount of real money from commissions, but also believing they held on to these incredibly valuable coins. And she just made up the price. The price would go up every few months, always increasing, of course. And by the middle of 2017, we are talking about three to four billion euros had been invested. And the market cap, if you multiply the number of coins people held by the price, the purported price of the coin, ran into hundreds and hundreds of billions of euros, at which point Dr. Ruja Ignatova disappeared into thin air, jumped on a Ryanair flight she looks from... a bit big to disappear into thin air. How did she manage that? Well, when you've got, when you disappear with at least 500 million euros of people's money and you're very, very well connected and you have a lot of plastic surgery and you buy fake identity documents, it is possible to disappear. And the people are still holding on to these coins, still expecting that one day they might be able to go on to one of the big crypto exchanges and turn them back into euros as they'd always been promised. Ja but Jamie, it's, it's we not were promised by, you know, whether it's Mashinsky, uh, one of the, the, the so-called prophets of crypto, or the guy in, um, in, uh, in, um, in Korea, um, uh, a man uh, uh, called, um, what was his name? Do Kwon, um, yeah. uh, who sold this thing into Korea. He, he sold a, a coin called Luna. We were told by all these people that the nature of cryptocurrency meant that it, it, it couldn't fail because of the blockchain, because it was rooted in blockchain, which was completely transparent. So as one of the founders of Ethereum suggested famously, James Wood, another English guy, um, trust is replaced with truth. What was the role of the blockchain in one coin? Was that a scam too? Yeah, it's in simple terms, it's quite a complicated story when you go into it. But the basics of it is she didn't ever really have a proper blockchain, not one that represented or, or held a record of the coins that people thought they had. So she had a kind of blockchain simulator that looked like one and people could look at it and say, oh, look at that fantastic bit of technology. But no one invested in one coin, understood really anything about any of this. They just saw all the hype around all the other cryptocurrencies and they really wanted to get a piece of the action. And Ruja Ignatova looked very credible. So OneCoin was playing on this insane hype and these absurd returns that people seemed to be getting from Bitcoin. And she thought, I know, I can just kind of make my own one up. No one will really understand it. But there's a business the model here too, Jamie. I mean, in the BBC piece on OneCoin, OneCoin did have quarterly revenue from at least from January 2015 to March 2017. What was that revenue? How were they making money? I wrote that article. I could tell you exactly what that's about. Well, one coin was making people with, were buying these coins, but they didn't really exist. They were just entries on an <laughs> Excel database. So people were spent were sending, I mean, in some weeks, three, you know, 300 million euros into one coin it was going through the promoters up the chain held in one coin corporate accounts in return they'd essentially get ponzi points i mean they'd get entries on something like an excel spreadsheet but which they were told was held on this mathematically secure beautiful blockchain and just like all these other promises 
the value of the coin is going to go up and up and up and up because that's all it ever does. The line always goes up. And while uh, Do Kwan and others were talking and Celsius were offering 20% return guaranteed, which you and I both know if that were true, Warren Buffett would have bought all of those options immediately. So ordinary people who think they're getting the inside word on this, they never are. And you can never guarantee even 20%. You can't Some even guarantee that. 3%, let alone 25%. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But the, 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 these guys were often promising like 10,000%. But people <laughs> believed it. People believed it because they'd seen an article in the Guardian newspaper about the guy who bought well, $10 we can always blame of Bitcoin. The, Guardian, uh, the Guardian's <laughs> usually the, the reason why everything's gone bad, Jeremy. But in all seriousness, I mean, this attracted to be polite, the least well-educated part of the of the investment community, of people who basically have no understanding of economics, no understanding of investment, no understanding of the security involved or the lack of security in what they were doing. So it really just preyed on the ignorant, the frail. And that's why these stories that come out of these collapsed Ponzi schemes are always so sad because it's always the person who, you know, saved up, Thirty or forty thousand yeah. dollars for their retirement, or to pay for, pay for their kids to go to college, who lost all their money. Yeah, that's it. Institutional investors weren't touching this. It was ordinary retail investors. I'd say the average investment was about five thousand euros, and the reason they wanted they wanted ten thousand percent return, not three percent return, is because they wanted to totally transform their lives, and they were told that they would. And five thousand euro investment that multiplies by ten thousand percent really can do it. And I went to Uganda and I went to a very, very small village, 500 miles away from Kampala, the capital, and found a village where, I mean, everyone had heard of OneCoin. And this woman had invested, she'd spent years working on a plantation, banana plantation, to save up to buy um, a store so she could sell maize. And she put it all into OneCoin. And even when I went there, she still believed that she still might get some of that money back. I don't know whether we should laugh or cry on this. I mean, I heard a number that 25% of Korean college students have invested in crypto. Where were the the regulators here? We, we always look for the regulators when we need them. They always show up when we don't need them. I had recently um, the FT journalist Dan McCrum on the show. I don't know if you know his book, yeah. Money yeah. Man, Money Man. Uh, yeah. which is an expose, a, a revelation of Wirecard. Of Wirecard, that German yeah, of course. Guy. Scam. It wasn't a crypto scam, but it's a Madoff-style criminal operation. When I said to um, uh, McCrum, why did you realize it was a scam? He said, it's because it was too good to be true. And he got threatened with being fired by the FT, uh, the most hard-headed of all financial uh, newspapers yeah. for his yeah. supposed obsession with Wirecard. Where yeah. were the regulators and where were keen-eyed journalists like you or McCrum on this clear scam. I mean, it must have been obvious back in 2016, 2017. Yeah, it's a source of frustration for me that. I mean, I wish I'd have known more about it sooner and I hold my hands up and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people to blame. It was a group of, it was a group of people on, a, on an obscure forum called Behind MLM that the, within a month of this coming out said, this is a Ponzi scheme. But most journalists ignored it. And the reason they did, I think, is they looked at this story and thought, it's a crypto story. I don't get it. It's too complicated. But the crypto press looked at OneCoin and thought, 
it's a Ponzi scheme. It's an investment scam. It's nothing to do with us. And OneCoin kind of got missed by nearly everyone. There was the occasional outlier. A journalist called Andrew Penman in the UK actually wrote about it in 2016. But it wasn't much. And because it comes from this weird multi-level marketing world, because the investors were all over the world, uh, no one country really got hold of it. And it's the same with the regulators. No, the regulators were saying nothing about this. Nothing. It's so frustrating. It was up. OneCoin held uh, 3,000 cheering fans at Wembley Arena in 2016. Police didn't shut it down. Loads of people put their money in. The Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, finally in late 2016, did put out a kind of watery warning, a press release saying, be careful of this company. A few months later, they took the notice down again. Jamie, and how much of this is bound up? We've done a series of shows on um, on the rotten international financial system, which tends to be centred, for better or worse, in the UK. Did a show recently, uh, The Butler, uh, on, uh, on, on Britain as a, as a haven for, for dirty money. Uh, Catherine Belton, of course, got sued by, by Putin. Many brave journalists have reported on this. How much is one coin and the fact that they seem to be centered in the UK in part, even if the investors were made, well, the, the people who were the casualties of this, the small investors were mostly in China. How much of this reflects badly on the UK and its absence of law and regulation on a woman like uh, uh, um, the woman who, who, who ran this thing? Uh, 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 who uh, who was educated, and I use that word carefully, at Oxford, supposedly one of our better, or one of your better universities. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, the, yes, the investors were from all over the world, but just because the scale of it makes it look like there weren't many investors in the UK because so many were in China. 50,000 people in the UK put money into this. So this really was affecting a lot and a similar number in Germany and a similar number in the US. So we're talking about a lot of people. It's just China had hundreds of thousands of people putting money in. London became a kind of second home for her. She was actually a German Bulgarian national. So there's a weird wire card connection there, another German based uh, scam. Yeah. She was a German Bulgarian national. Her, she had head offices in Sofia, but also in Dubai. And then she set up a family office in London where she was thinking of kind of basing herself to become an above board, I think, an above board financial investor. But I think for the same reason that Oliver Bullo and other people have written about London, she was drawn to London because it has a lot of good lawyers who are willing to work for companies like this, a lot of good PR firms, a lot of excellent property. Companies' house is not always the most well looked after register of business interests. And so she, it's sort of annoyingly obvious for her to have come to London. I hope things are going to change. But and what about the Russian connection? Um, in um, uh, mm -hmm. Dan McCrum noted that Money Man, the, the chief criminal of, uh, of, of Wirecard, now is in Moscow. Um, now uh, Ignatovery is Bulgarian. The Bulgarian histor Bulgaria historically has had quite close links with Russia. Is there a Russian connection to this? When Dr. Ruja Ignatova absconded, when she disappeared in October 2017, she flew Ryanair, believe it or not, Ryanair, <laughs> for which I think it was part of the reason she was, I need to go the last place anyone's going to expect 
Ryanair flight from Sofia to Athens, where she was met by two Russians. And her brother, in later court testimony, because she, she, she left her brother holding the can. Her brother got arrested in the US. He's in, he's, in, um, he's in New York at the moment. He's pleaded guilty and he's working with the authorities. Um, said that just before she disappeared, Ruja became friendly, made good connections with some very powerful Russians, but who are still unnamed and unknown. And we've tried to investigate it, but especially at the moment, it is extremely difficult to work out who these people are. Ruja Ignatova has been on the run for five years. The book is partly trying to find out where she is. Right, here's a photo of you with her... Uh... One of her uh, yachts. Yacht, which is no longer owned by her, the Davina. What have you found, uh, Jamie, in this book and in your investigations that's news about the missing crypto queen? Do you have any idea where she is? Yeah, well, we tried to trace her steps, basically. And uh, this is what we think happened. She goes to Athens, Greece. She gets met by... On a Ryanair flight. On a Ryanair flight. Couldn't make this imagine. stuff up, could you, Jamie? Even if you put it in a movie, people say, this is ridiculous. Honestly. I just sometimes when I was writing it and when we were working on the podcast, I'd be looking at the producer saying, are we are we going completely mad here? This is ridiculous because things like her brother gets her brother takes over the company when she disappears. He doesn't know the first thing about cryptocurrency. He's a bodybuilder <laughs> who likes mixed martial arts, flies to America and immediately gets himself arrested and then has to testify against everyone else who's getting arrested because thank God for the US authorities because they're the only ones that really have gone after this. Country. Right, and that's Oliver Buller's point is, you know, I'm in the business, everyone in America is always trashing America, but he says that the Americans are very good on this oh, yeah. front in terms of regulating crypto, especially compared to the British. Yeah, and not only that, the Department of Justice and the New, and the New York Southern District Court actually goes after these people and doesn't stop until they get them. So Dr. Ruja could kind of laugh off a Chinese arrest warrant. She could laugh off the Argentinian or the Indian arrest warrant. But the minute she realized that the Department of Justice were onto her, she vanished because she knew she wouldn't be able to get away with it. Not with them. So we tried to retrace her steps. I think she goes from Athens. She actually smuggles herself back into Bulgaria. This is our working theory. Smuggles herself back into Bulgaria, where she's very well connected, including some mysterious connections to Bulgaria's most notorious cocaine kingpin, who lives in Dubai. She then realizes that the German and American authorities are onto her. She flees to Dubai. We find that we've actually managed to discover, we think, her sort of a secret mansion where she uh, stayed for some period. But then get this, I don't know if you heard about this, but of peculiar part of the story in 2015 she has 50 million dollars frozen in dubai bank accounts she sells her company and writes three checks to a well-connected sheikh from the, an emirate in exchange for listen 230,000 bitcoin worth 50 million euros so she's still scamming people it's possible that she is now in possession of 230,000 Bitcoin, which would be 5 billion, I don't know, 5 billion euros, something like yeah, that. That's funny. I did a show with Ethan Lau, uh, who's a bit of a cheerleader for all this stuff. He has a book, Once a Bitcoin Miner. I said to him, we did an interview a couple of weeks ago. I said, justify crypto. I said, explain how it could have value. And he gave me the example of an Afghan, a female Afghan refugee who got driven out of Af Afghanistan. She shows up, she, she owns some Bitcoin. 
She shows up in Germany. And because she had a photographic memory, she could remember the code on that Bitcoin, which enabled her to essentially reclaim that Bitcoin. I assume that Ignatieva could be the darker version of that narrative, is that she's walking around with the code in her head worth millions, maybe billions of dollars. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's a way to move money around. Uh, that sort of goes like that sort of any any limits or controls because a lot of her assets are frozen now. The way she could get around that is using the cryptocurrency Bitcoin that she always trashed Bitcoin because she always said my my one coin is the Bitcoin killer. It's the one that's finally going to sort of. Well, she would say that, wouldn't she? She would say that. Yeah, we can't we can't. It's been very hard to verify whether she's still got all of those Bitcoin, if she sold some of them, if something else happened. Where do you think, do you think she's in Moscow? Like right. most of these other global crypto financial criminals of one kind? It's possible. Another? It's possible. It's one of the options for sure. But my money, and I know it may sound a bit too Hollywood to be true, but my money is that she's on a on a boat in the Mediterranean. But she's not on the Davina, right? That's not on the Davina, no. That's small fry. That's nothing. That's teeny tiny. She'd need something much bigger, a super yacht, really. I hope at really. least that she is on that boat, that she's not enjoying herself. I mean, surely people are chasing her. Is There a, uh, There must be an international warrant. Who's who's you, you leading the police yeah, case you, against her? You wouldn't believe this, but it took until last month for Europol to finally put Dr. Ruja on their most wanted list. So she now sits proudly next to Jan Marsilek of Wirecard and others as one of the most wanted criminals in Europe. Finally, finally, last month, Interpol also issued a red notice, meaning she needs, she'll be arrested. Well, she should be arrested. I mean, Interpol's not always the most trustworthy of organisations. I mean, she should be arrested. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a, a, an Inspector Clouseau aspect to them, isn't there? But there, there is, well, exactly, yeah. But so the US authorities have an indictment out for her. Uh, for her arrest on multiple counts of fraud and money laundering and wire fraud. And the German authorities are probably now the ones leading most of all because she's a German citizen. And so I think they're behind the Europol arrest warrant. They have received now 30 tip-offs relating to her current whereabouts. So it's hotting up in literally in the last few weeks. But what's really annoying about this, and it's your classic case of regulators, it's too late. A million people have already lost their money. And yes, we still want to bring her to justice, but this should have happened six months after this coin was launched, not five years, by which time all the people that made money out of this have either been arrested now or they've scarpered, or they're sitting pretty with all the money they've made. Let's step back a bit, Jamie, because you're, you've done remarkable investigative journalism for the missing crypto queen, but you're also one of the leading thinkers on digital. Many of you, many, many of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with your book, The Dark Net Inside the Digital Underworld. Uh, excellent book, perhaps the best book still on the dark net. To what extent is Ignatova and the, the crypto scam of OneCoin, to what extent is it the logical next chapter of the dark net? What's the connection between the dark net and crypto? And particularly, Ignatova, who seems to be a creature who could have quite literally crawled out of the dark net and has crawled back into it. <laughs> yeah, but she crawled out of Oxford University instead. The um, 
I suppose the thing about the Darknet I was interested in was just how ordinary, how uh, criminals and weird subcultures always seem to be the first to sort of figure out how they could use these exciting new technologies. It's not, I mean, you, you know better than anyone, Andrew, of all the work that you've done, how a group of technologists will stand around and say how wonderful this tech is, it's going to change the world, and seem baffled over and over again when bad guys think, ooh, I've got a good idea for how I could use that. I'll rip loads of people off and no one's going to catch me. So she's like uh, taking some of these early ideas in the, I mean, because she was onto Bitcoin the same time I was, before I was in 2013. She's looking at this thinking, well, if I take this all this hype and sort of excitement and ridiculous value of these crypto coins, and I just mix it with a multi-level marketing campaign, she even says herself in an email, I am an expert in the grey area, the area that's unregulated. To jump in, Jamie, she went to Oxford. I mean, what is the background of this woman? It, it comes to mind Elizabeth Holmes, who's the sort of the female Robin Hood, in a sense, of Silicon Valley. Is there an element of, if not heroism, of remarkable chutzpah of this woman? Is she from a poor family? How did she get to Oxford? What did she do before this? She is from a poor family. Her uh, sort of children of immigrants who left Bulgaria as soon as the Iron Curtain was drawn, um, turned up aged uh, sort of 11, 12 years old in, in Germany, with really no money, all of them living in a small flat above a butcher's, but just an absolutely brilliant mind. I mean, teachers who taught her said she was the smartest kid I ever taught. A year after being in Germany, she's reciting poems that the other German kids don't even know. And she's just absolutely obsessed with becoming rich, being wealthy, having her talents recognized. So there's a bit of the Elizabeth, and, and uh, you know, the female element here is kind of interesting. There's a little bit of the Elizabeth Holmes here in her, is there? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons OneCoin did so well, and I've spoken to a lot of investors who've said, I was so happy to finally see a cryptocurrency run by a woman. She was like the first one. And a lot of people said to see her up there, to see a woman finally breaking into this world dominated by men, they just wanted to back her, and they saw her degree from Oxford, and they and saw she what did they have, were... she had a legitimate. What, what I checked all of that. that. I checked all of that. The degree was in, uh, um, I think, it's in comparative law, and she also had a PhD in law as well. Not in comparative fraud. <laughs> She could write it now, obviously. I mean, the thing it's is... Funny, we had Simon Cooper on the show. He has the new book out, the FT journalist Chums, about the rottenness of Oxford in producing men like Boris Johnson. And, and, I did and, a and, master's and, degree at Oxford University oh, as did, well. Right, I, but, um, <laughs> I wonder if there is a connection between the dishonesty of some of these leading institutions, although presumably she was a scholarship student. I mean, she was a legitimate student, right? A completely legitimate student. I mean, her grades were incredible. Like I said, she went to Constance University in Germany, another school of excellence, got a PhD in law there. But it's a good example, I think, of how people just, in this new world of technology that no one understands, 
ordinary people were relying on the sort of traditional ways of guaranteeing trustworthiness. Oh, she's got a degree from Oxford. Oh, she spoke at an event that was hosted by The Economist. Well, surely they would have checked. Surely no one with a PhD. Well, no one can law. check on everything. I mean, in defense of the exactly. economist or the no, exactly. or even Exa Oxford. Exactly. But, but what I'm saying is that is what people think. They can't be bothered to check for themselves. But it's like Holmes. Holmes traded on Stanford, on the network she built around Stanford, on the, the men that she intellectually seduced with the lie of Theranos. I assume that Ignatova did exactly the same with OneCoin. Yes, but she, she absolutely, yeah. In a way that she was, uh, she was different because she wasn't trying to convince institutional investors. She was trying to convince ordinary people, and what she was doing there was a lot. She was more overt with her glamorous lifestyle. So for her, it was all Lamborghinis. It was all enormous parties. Tom Jones sang at her birthday party. Bebe Rexa sang at her birthday party. It was like look at this amazing lifestyle I have created. You can do that too. It was a simpler argument in a way. It was a more emotional argument than the, yeah, like you say, the seduction of Elizabeth Holmes was slightly more sophisticated in some ways. Right. But Rouge fooled a million people. Right. I so mean, Holmes, Holmes seduced, metaphorically anyway, George Schultz. She found a group of very influential senior political people who she convinced with the lie of Theranos. Ignatova didn't do that. She didn't find the equivalent of George Schultz in England or Germany. No, it wasn't about that. It was about targeting ordinary people. It was about going to the small village in Uganda and getting 10,000 people to Did eat. Did she have any, I mean, do you get any sense in terms of, um, in, in your research, given that she ripped off so many poor people, that did she have any conscience? I mean, if hopefully touch wood, she end, she ends up in court somewhere. Is she going to break down tearfully and say, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I have so much guilt for all these people's lives I wrecked," just like Bernie Madoff? I don't think so. I think what she'll say is caveat emptor. It was your fault. You shouldn't have. You why did you trust me? You should have known. You do your own research. I told you something. You believed it. That's not my problem. But the guilt she may feel is towards her family. She, she ran away in October 2017, and her younger brother, who she persuaded to join as her PA one year earlier, ends up becoming the CEO. He was working in a Porsche factory. He loved dogs. He liked working out. Literally no clue about any of this stuff. And he's the one that investors, hell's angels, turn up to his office and point a gun at his head and say, where's our money? We're coming back if you don't have it. He's the one that flies to America to do an event, gets arrested and is still, and is still, and he's- Well, he's gonna end up in jail. He's gonna, well, he, he's hoping to have a, um, to obviously sort of be rewarded for working with the government. He's testifying now against other OneCoin employees, other people that promoted this coin, in the hope that maybe he'll get a witness relocation program and a reduced sentence because the US authorities wanted him for 90 years. He only joined the company one year earlier because his sister asked him to. So if there's any regret she feels, I think it will be the betrayal towards her own family. It's fascinating stuff. Finally, uh, Jamie, it's really a, a remark, really a remarkable. We do lots of remarkable stories. This is a remarkable, remarkable story. I, I wrote a piece recently about 
the connection between crypto crashes and the rise of Steve Bannon, the undermining of democracy. You also wrote a book, uh, The People Versus Tech, how the mm. internet is killing democracy and how we can save it. What's the, the political lessons, the political dimension to the crypto queen? What does it tell us about the crisis of democracy around the world? People just didn't know who to trust. People did not know who to trust. And I think a lot of people still feel, a million people, 50,000 people in the UK feel like nobody, not one institution, not one political leader, not the regulators, not action fraud, not the police, have done anything about this. And so a sort of break, the, the general breakdown of confidence in institutions, which I think is partly laid at the door of digital technology, is it was an example of that. No one could be caught. No one could stop it. No regulator could sort of manage this digital opportunity that they were all being pushed with. Everyone believed the line was going to go up forever and no one was helping them. And even today, not only is OneCoin still being promoted around the world, there are multiple OneCoin clones, essentially identical coins that are being pushed and nothing's really being done about it. So it feels it feels lawless. And the well, idea it is of, lawless. And uh, the idea of, I, I, I interviewed uh, Jennifer Senor, New Yorker writer. She wrote a piece on Bannon called um, uh, the, the American Rasputin. This is an atmosphere that encourages Rasputins, just as the real Rasputin, the original Rasputin, emerged in a Russia in massive crisis and decline. We have knockoff Rasputins, whether it's Steve Bannon or perhaps women like Ignatova, basically just criminal conspirators with these schemes for ripping everybody off. Yeah, looking for the digital grey area, as she calls it, the legal grey area, where they know that the regulators are a bit clueless, they know the police won't really catch up to them. And when people start, people will start losing faith in the ability of the police to prosecute online crime. But the majority of crime now is online. And yet we still, like hardly any of it ever gets stopped. So it's a good example of how, unfortunately, how easy it is to get away with this stuff in a sort of a global economy where police forces are still geographically based. Doesn't work. Is there anything in crypto, Jamie, or is it one big scam? Do you think there's anything real in this economy? I was waiting for you to ask me that question. Um, I like the idea of digital scarcity. Something about the, the possibility that as more and more of us own digital assets, an idea that you can introduce some form of scarcity into that and some form of value into creating scarcity of digital content seems to me quite interesting and important. Whether that is going to mean absurdly priced NFTs, that's a different question. I see that as a different question entirely. I mean, if this is like the dot-com boom, maybe we come out of this with something quite interesting at the other end, but it will take another 10 years before we get there. And should we take terms like Web3 seriously? We've done lots of shows on, on Web3, as you can imagine. I'm mm. a bit of a skeptic. I mean, something's changing in Silicon Valley. Huge amounts of money is still pouring into crypto, even last week. Yeah, I know. And, and, it, and a lot of it does come down to the sort of metaverse and using crypto to pay. But I still think, again, you, you know better than me with this. Does it not feel like the sort of insane optimism of how 
social media was going to make democracy work better again, like we all said in two, well, you didn't say it, but a lot of us did say it in 2005, 2006. This is how democracy is yeah. going well, to be. the end of power, Bill, all these uh, yeah. lots of fairy tales, but if there so is anyone who slays you. the fairy tales, slays the crypto queen, it's Jamie Bartlett, uh, his new book, The Missing Crypto Queen, The Billion Dollar Cryptocurrency Con and the Woman Who Got Away With It. It's a remarkable story. I mean, the most remarkable thing about it is it's true. It's nonfiction. It's, they're going to, I'm sure that you, I know you've got a popular podcast around it, Jamie. I'm sure there's going to be a film, a TV series. Congratulations. Let's talk. On, on exposing yeah. this woman, maybe slightly too late, but you've done a good job at least <laughs> post scan. Uh, yeah. What else would people yeah. be reading, Jamie, in addition to the missing crypto king? What are you reading? I, these days? I always read old books. Uh, like I feel like I get a lot more insight into modern technology by reading books that aren't really about modern technology a lot of the time. So been reading this one lately, Walden 2 by B.F. Skinner. <laughs> I mean, this is also about a techno-utopia, obviously, not driven by technology, but science. The behavioralist dystopia. The behavioralist dystopia as well, and the same discussions about, but we can perfectly predict human behavior. And could we not make a wonderful society if we did that? And the stuff that's the relevance of this book. I know B.F. Skinner didn't really write it as a critique so much as a, a sort of praise of the possibilities, but the the... I find so often that reading older books about society and human behavior, which is what a lot of this is really about, I find a lot more of value than necessarily reading about tech books. So I read that. And the other book I read recently that just still blows me away, a really obvious one that I'd never read before, is The Origins of Totalitarianism mm. by Hannah Arendt. I mean, you every page there's something to say about modern society. So those are the two 